All right, so like I said, we are in week 17 of our study on the doctrine of worship. And we've been focusing specifically on the uniqueness of corporate worship and God's instruction in His Word regarding corporate worship. So we distinguished it from the worship that is in all of life or the worship that we give to the Lord daily in offering ourselves as a living sacrifice to Him. And we've turned specifically to consider what does God's Word say about corporate worship when we come together as the church. And the last three weeks, we've been talking about the regulative principle of worship. The regulative principle of worship is defined in the Reformed Confessions. Two weeks ago, our thesis was, we looked at Scripture, and again, looking at the regulative principle, we've been looking at how Scripture supports the regulative principle. And our thesis, and what we saw from the Word of God there, is that God alone determines how sinners may approach Him in worship. Which, of course, makes sense. The worship is for Him. He determines what is pleasing to Him. But the flip side of this, what we saw last week, is that human innovation in worship nullifies and undermines true worship, and it even invites the special judgment of God. That's the very definition of idolatry. It's offering to God idolatrous worship, worship that comes from our own inclinations, our own innovations, rather than the worship that He has prescribed in His Word. And so our conclusion from the last three weeks is simply this. The regular principle is simply the consistent application of the Reformed doctrine of Sola Scriptura. That's essentially what we've seen. The sufficiency of Scripture, Sola Scriptura, applied to corporate worship in light of the special presence of God in the corporate nature of our gathering. So that's kind of the big picture. The regular principle gets a lot of bad press nowadays. It gets a lot of, oh, it's too harsh. It's not detailed in the New Testament. Uh, It's too restrictive. It doesn't do justice to the freedom that we have in Christ under the New Covenant. But what I've simply tried to argue is that it is simply the consistent outworking of the Reformed doctrine of Sola Scriptura. Scripture is sufficient for all of our needs, for all of our instruction, particularly in worship. So this week, I want to turn and I want to look at a positive side of the, of the regular principle, a more positive argument, briefly. And then I want to turn to make some specific applications of the regular principle in today's context. And that will really close out this study as we make application specific application in today's world based upon all the theological and biblical points that we've made these last 16 weeks. So I want to talk about some opposing views and applications, and this might get a little controversial. That's good, right? We can talk about this. I want to talk about also, uh, we'll conclude by looking at the regular principle and the day of worship, and that's really where we will go um, next week. Or I should say two weeks from today. Next week we're having a uh, prayer breakfast. But the regular principle in the day of worship, uh, see, 
to understand the biblical and confessional view on that, and then we'll turn from there to go towards music and other forms of liturgy. So, definition. Let's remember our working definition of the regular principle. It's stated in our confession, chapter 22.1, and it's simply that the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by Himself, and it's so limited by His own revealed will. So it's limited by Scripture, so that we're not to worship Him according to our imaginations, we're not to worship Him according to the suggestions of Satan, idolatry, false religion, things of that nature, nor under any visible representations, or in any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. Worship is governed by the Word of God. That's our thesis. So, considering the arguments I've made the last few weeks, I want to talk more about a positive side of this. Positive argument for the regulative principle. We've seen the negative side. We've seen that God defines worship for us. He does that because we are sinners. Our hearts are drawn towards idolatry, instinctively. We're going to be drawn towards things that please us rather than please Him. Alright? And we've seen the negative side in the sense that God's judgment falls upon those who innovate. Again, the very definition of idolatry. In Scripture, God judges and condemns those who offer will worship according to the will of man. But I want to consider a positive and a pragmatic argument as well. Again, we've already looked at Scripture, so I'm not saying this is the end all. But it can be helpful in working through these issues. What's a, what's a positive and pragmatic side for uh, argument for the regular principle? The positive side is, when we look at the New Testament, and specifically the book of Acts and the epistles, when we look at the New Testament and we examine how the early church worshipped, and the instructions that Paul writes to the early church regarding worship, we see centrality of the Word. You see them reading the Word, preaching the Word, singing the Word, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, right? Praying the Word, their prayers are often filled with Old Testament allusions and quotations. And seeing the word illustrated in the two sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Christ dying and rising again. The broken body in the bread and the spilt blood in the wine of the Lord's Supper. Everything centers around the word. To break this down specifically, what do we see? We see New Testament worship as praying with and for the church community. We see reading and preaching the word, observing baptism in the Lord's Supper, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We see the giving of offerings for the poor, but also for the needs of the church. We see confessing their sins, both in prayer and to one another. We see confessing their faith. This comes out in some of the creeds, early creeds and hymns and doxologies that we see littered throughout the, uh, the epistles. 
we see them giving and receiving God's blessings, like greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss, right? (laughs) And benedictions to one another. We see them sharing meals with one another. Agape feast. Now, I'm going to... I'm not, I'm not saying that's an element of worship, but it comes um, in the sense it, it's um, an activity of the covenant community together. And we see them responding to praise and prayer with Amen. This is the worship that we see in the New Testament. And the positive argument of this, oh, we also see miraculous gifts as well, speaking in tongues and prophecy which of course we believe have ceased. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But this is what we see as worship in the New Testament. So I have two points here regarding you know, a positive argument for worship being limited to those things that we saw, to what we see in Scripture per God's instruction. First, the positive is we see God bless these forms of worship. He blessed the early church, particularly we see this in the book of Acts, through these forms of worship. They gathered, they worshipped, they prayed, and the Lord added to the church. The Lord added to the church. Again and again and again we see these forms of worship being blessed by God in the the, uh, New Testament. In his word, the New Testament instructions to the church, he also promises to bless these forms of worship. And this promise is, of course, for us as well. It's not just for the early church. The word of Christ dwelling richly in you. That is a blessing of God that comes by the power of the Spirit. He talks about the Spirit and it's, and it's how it has gifted particular men and leaders in the church to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So we see Him doing it, and we see Him promising to do, to bless the church through these forms of worship. And we talked about this in previous weeks, when we covered the means of grace. Particular things that God has given for our edification, maturity, and growth. In godliness. So my point here is this. Why would we not want to give ourselves to what God has promised to bless? What God has blessed and promised to bless. It's kind of a positive side. Why? If we see that He blesses, and we see that He promises to bless, would we not then want to give ourselves to these things, rather than Devising things on our own. Coming up with other ways in which we don't know whether he blesses those forms of worship or not. We don't know whether they please him. We don't know whether his spirit dwells, uh, or excuse me, works through them. The positive side is we ought to want to give ourselves to what we see in the New Testament and how God has blessed and has promised to bless. 
And of course, the flip side of this is a pragmatic side to all of this. Can you think of one Sunday in your experience when you've done all 13 of these things? Let me get back to this here. Prayer, reading and preaching, baptism and the Lord's Supper, singing, giving, confessing, perhaps. I think, well, hold on. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Oh, man, okay. (laughs) Nice, nice. Absolutely right. The point that I'm trying to make is occasionally, perhaps, but not often. For those 13 acts of worship make up quite a full day. Even more so, a full service, if you fit all those things in there. Stay with me here. So, given these 13 prominent practices, when is there time for anything else? The necessities of life restrict how much time we have for worship. Right? We have to provide for our families, for ourselves. We have to work for a living. Our bodies need regular rest. Okay, you can see where I'm going with this uh, end of this week, next week, right? There is a limit to how long a worship service should be, lest it prove unhelpful to our minds and bodies. No comments on this point. We have long worship services. It's because we only have a morning service. When we have an evening service, Lord willing, our morning service will be much shorter. My point is, when we give ourselves to what we see in the Word of God, we don't have time for anything else. Not if we fully give ourselves to them. Sure, we can cut down... Um, and sing only one song a week, or we can cut uh, a sermon to 10 or 15 minutes. I don't know how that would ever happen, but you know, we could cut it in and then fit other things in there. But my point is, pragmatically, if God blesses these things in the New Testament, He's promised to bless them, and there's an abundance of things that He's promised to bless, why would we not give all of our time to these things? It's already more than we can handle in one Sunday or in one service. So even setting aside the negative uh, uh, prohibition, prohibition, thank you. All of a sudden I just lost lost it there for a second. Even setting aside the the regular principle, many say, oh, that's just the Old Testament. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But, oh, it's just the Old Testament. It doesn't matter. But even setting these things aside, would we not want to give ourselves to the worship that we see God bless in the early church? the worship that God has promised to do. And when we give ourselves to these things, honestly, do we really have time for anything else? We have more than enough to meet our needs and fill out our time. And really, the only way to add something of our own innovation is to subtract and replace something else from God's Word. 
That's the point I made last week with that altar in 2 Kings from Ahaz. He travels to Assyria. He sees this awesome pagan altar. He comes back. He tells the priest in Israel to fashion an altar just like it. He puts it at the center of the, uh, of the temple and he moves God's altar to the back. Out of the way, out of sight, out of mind. Anytime we add our own worship, we've got to subtract and replace something that God has ordained. So, the conclusion that I, this is my conclusion. Regardless of whether one holds to a strict regulative principle or not, the addition subtraction of New Testament forms of worship is one chief reason why much of the American church is superficial and absent of real spiritual fruit in our day. It's kind of harsh, but this is my point. It's my belief. The popular church has neglected the forms of worship seen in the New Testament the things God has attached His promises to, and they have filled their services with other things, things that do not truly create and strengthen faith. We know what's better. People need comedy and drama and Talks rather than sermons and conversations and special music and, in some cases, um, wrestling matches. <laughs> and that one pastor who, uh, what did he do? He, dirt bike, came on stage riding a dirt bike in a jump and fell and broke his, broke his arm. They need stunts. They need all these things to attract people, to get them to cling to Christ, Right? popular church has gone after these things, and I believe that's one reason why so much of our worship and so much of the Christianity we see in our culture is superficial. It does not bear fruit that honors God. All right. So that's really all the time we're going to spend on the regular principle, as a principle. And we're going to turn to make some application of it. Um. But before we move on, I want to make sure that we don't have any questions about it. This is your opportunity if you have questions about the regular principle. Before we turn, I mean, you'll have opportunities in the future as well as we make application of it. But based upon what we've covered so far, the positive and the negative side, do you guys have any questions or comments? Either you're totally convinced or you think I'm crazy. Mark? Um, this isn't, well, it just, uh, I want to know if this applied well. Uh, when you said, when you said the thing about, you know, the stunts that uh, the modern, like that certain modern churches will do, um, it made me think of the passage where Jesus sends the disciples out and he tells them that if a town does not accept you, to shake the dust off your sandals when you leave, mm-hmm. and in some ways, that's that that's being ignored by the people who do the stunts because they keep 
trying and trying harder and harder until people who just won't listen. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, if they will not receive the word, then they will not receive anything. And um, you're absolutely right in, in the sense that if they will not receive the word, then um, going after them <coughs> with anything else is not only foolish, but it will be unprofitable and it would distract us from our true duties, which is making disciples of those who are here and giving them the word, those who are hungry for it. That's a good point. Kim? To go along with what uh, Mark said, you know, I'm striving hard to get people to come in, but yet neglecting that which God promises to in this report that it was superficial. Um, read articles how once uh, you know, the youth leave high school and move on to college, then they abandon the church hmm. and then wonder why. So then they try even more stuff, but not wanting to get back to uh, the truth boring service, uh, which has power and has attached God's promises. Yeah. Yeah, without a doubt, uh, millennials, uh, which most of you in this room are millennials, (laughs) except for three, (laughs) um, have grown up in churches uh, where consisted of youth groups and pizza parties and lock-ins, and um, dare I say vacation Bible school, things that have trivialized the faith in some sense. I'm not saying that they're always wrong, so don't get on to me for that, but things that have made the faith trivial. And you're right, Kim, they're looking, um, there's been a great return to... um, a more emphasis on liturgy in the younger generations. Uh, flocking to churches with creeds and confessions and liturgy and looking for things that are obviously deep instead of superficial, happy-go-lucky, shine, Jesus, shine. Now they want, you know, a mighty fortress is our God. And it's in response to what this culture they've been raised up in. And In fact, I even read an article why... Uh, VBS is destroying the church. And I think that's going a little far. I actually sent my kids to VBS at LMPC this, this year. But the author made a great point. You make church out to be games and coloring and arts and crafts and silly songs. And when they get older, they realize there's no substance to that. It's all fake hype. And um, it's one reason why so many millennials are fleeing the church. Yeah. Let's get back to worship of the New Testament and the reverence of our God and what we see. Cultivating, again, just, just having the right form of worship doesn't ensure that God will bless you, doesn't ensure that you're worshiping in a way that is pleasing to Him. As we've talked about in the weeks and weeks and weeks, it's not just that we follow the regular principle We must have hearts that are sincerely and honestly dedicated to the Lord. It's a heart thing as well. It's not either or. Nathan? Um, I mean, you mentioned like VBS, the youth group, those things. I mean, those aren't 
Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of broadening out. You're right, they're not. You're, they're not. But I'm kind of broadening out just the, the we talk about the church trying to make itself more attractive. Um, um, the church trying to yeah, look more attractive in the eyes of, of unbelievers in order to appeal to them. But you're right, absolutely, yeah. But it's like special music, you know. We're not having a service today. We're having a concert. Uh, it's evangelistic. Or we're having a play. We're having a Christmas place, taking the place of the worship service. Um, it's being treated as a worship service. It's being treated as a way in which to attract unbelievers. And um, I mean, those touch on issues that are related to the work, regular principle, without a doubt. So we're going to talk about. Let's get, let's get controversial. All right. So we ought to avoid being controversial. Or devices. This is like my disclaimer, okay? I might say some things. I am going to say some things. They're going to step on a few of your toes. I know you guys. Some of, some of you hold different views, okay? Um, we ought to avoid it as much as possible, and yet we still ought to hold fast to the truth and expose error. So I don't say these things for the sake of being controversial, but let's look at some alternative views. I want to look at some broad implications from those who reject the regulative principle, even though they might give lip service to it. I'll look at these four right here. Catholic, Charismatic, Arminian, and Antinomian, and how, ways in which they reject the regulative principle of worship. So this is the most obvious. We have Roman Catholic worship. This is the... Um, soil in which the regulative principle was cultivated and sprouted up among the reformers. They saw the idolatry of the Roman Catholic Church. They've added things such as incense and holy water, confessional and other extra-biblical rituals. They had and do have icons and images and idols. They worship visually. They have relics, another form of visual worship. So they have addition of many elements, right? They also have transformation and innovation of biblical elements. The Mass is a sacrifice. Okay, it's, it's something different to them. Uh, transubstantiation. You know, the, the bread turns into the actual body of the Lord physically. And you actually have to have the physical body within you in order to be righteous. Okay? They also have subtraction of permissible biblical elements, such as they deny the cup of the Lord's Supper to the laity. It's only the priests who are worthy enough to partake of both the bread and the wine. The bread's for the people. They can't even touch it. They have to sit there and have it placed in their mouth. And the cup is only for the super saints, the priests. These, all of these, are a violation of the regular principle. The incense is in the Old Testament. Ah... Talk about baptism. We believe 
and I'm not just Baptist, but Reformed doctrine holds that elements of worship are part of positive law. Positive law, and I'm not, I can't get into all this, but let me just say this. Positive law must be positively instructed under that covenant. So we do not look and say, oh, you know the Old Testament priest sacrificed a lamb as an act of worship. We can do that. It's in the Bible. We must look to the revelation of God in that covenant to His people. This is why, we'll talk about it in a second, Reformed Baptists hold that Paedo-Baptists, Presbyterians, violate the regular principle of worship. I'll talk about that more in a moment. Look to the New Testament for instruction on worship. Otherwise, you're violating the regular principle. Because you're right. Incense and holy water. And the, the, the priest and the masses of sacrifice, they build off of Old Testament doctrine. You can see the imagery even in transubstantiation, in, in the, the mass as a sacrificial ritual. It's, well, it was the Old Testament was a sacrifice. This is what Jesus, the Passover, he's fulfilling a Passover. It's all the same thing, see? So they, they go to the Old Testament to defend these practices. So these are all issues that the regular principle touches on. And I'm going to argue that it would be hard to deny many of these elements as legitimate if one rejects the regular principle of worship. There's nothing in Scripture that says you can't use holy water. There's nothing in Scripture that says you can't have the confessional or the rites or the rituals that they have. The ultimate root of these errors for the Roman Catholic Church lies in the fact that they hold that church tradition is just as authoritative as Scripture. And so again, my point, the regular principle is simply sola scriptura applied to the worship of the church. Oh, tradition! God blesses tradition. He's given us the authority to institute tradition. That's why they have all the things that they do. Because they reject sola scriptura. All right. I know I'm opening up a can of worms here, and we only have 10 minutes, but. All right. Charismatic. The practice of speaking in tongues and seeking new revelation prophecy is a de facto denial of sola scriptura. Some other revelation from God is needed in addition to what is found in Scripture. And so, again, just the basic implications of this. Whenever a fresh revelation, either by tongue or prophecy, both of those are revelation, whenever a fresh revelation is available, the Word will always be pushed to the back of the room. We have this cold, dead letter, right? Cold, dead letter. I want a fresh word from the Spirit. Something that really excites me, that comes in my inner being, that really gives me an experience, gives me, puts it in new words. That's what charismatic theology, that's the impetus behind it. That's what they want. They're not satisfied with the word. And so they seek fresh revelation. 
And of course, you can see the implications of this. When new revelations are still active, when you can still hear God's voice in different ways, the regular principle of do not add or subtract is completely undermined. Because God could always add something not positively revealed. You know, the Lord just struck me today. He told me that we don't need to have a sermon. We don't need to have the Lord's Supper. It's just not right for us today. We're just going to sing songs. When God still speaks, the way that He spoke in Old Testament, or excuse me, in the New Testament, when 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 these gifts were still active, you can never hold to this principle because He could always add to it, reveal things that don't go against Scripture. But things are just that are added on that you need to do. So, again, just like with Roman Catholic theology, the ultimate issue behind the, the cessationism, the fact that we believe that the miraculous gifts served a particular purpose in redemptive history, and when they completed that purpose, they ended because of the sufficiency of the Word of God and the Spirit which now works through the Word and only through the Word, never apart from the Word. It's basic Reformed theology. The Spirit never works apart from the Word. The ultimate issue behind that belief is a conviction of sola scriptura. It's not church tradition. It's not new revelations. It's not anything else that guides and directs God's people. It is the Spirit working through the Word. And without this, without Sola Scriptura, the argument for cessationism falls apart. Without Sola Scriptura, the argument for a regular principle falls apart. <laughs> well, uh, that ending of Mark is, by all, by all accounts, not included in the original. I don't believe that's original. There's a textual issue there. I saw a, a meme one time. It had a guy holding a snake, a snake handler, and it said, textual criticism saves lives. <laughs> so true. I study the manuscripts. That ending is not in the original manuscripts, but... But still, that's a time when miraculous gifts were still active, um, which would be different. That's, that's even before the foundation. That's before the giving of the Spirit in the ending of Mark. It's before the pouring out of Pentecost, and it's before the completion of the canon. So, so would you say it's Scripture? Say what? Would you say it's Scripture? I'm saying even if it was in Scripture. I don't, I don't believe it was the original part, part of the text, no. But even if it was, we're not, we're not completely sure. But even if it was, I don't think it changes. It doesn't change anything. Because uh, it was at a time when miraculous gifts were still active. Right, but you're saying you're not sure if it was Scripture then, but is it Scripture now? Is it part of the Scripture? Mark? No. One? The ending of Mark? Or? The ending. I don't believe it's part of Scripture now. I preached on this about a month ago, John 8, the woman caught in adultery. I talk about some text criticism issues and, and how to sort through those. So, 
I will refer the listener to that. All right. Five minutes. Arminian. <laughs> See how many people I can offend in one 45-minute session. Arminian. My argument here is if salvation is a free choice, then any person can freely choose at any time. Then worship, by and large, turns into a service designed to induce decisions. That's just an observation of reality. That's what we see in the Armenian church today. We see Billy Graham crusades. Tent revivals. Hour-long altar calls. And that's being conservative. This is a revivalism that's focused on getting people to make a decision because it all depends upon their free will. The worship service, the entire worship service becomes crafted with the unbeliever as the main focus. It is for them. And that truly reveals who they worship as well in many respects. Charles Finney, American revivalist. Basically, um, salvation is a matter of the right circumstances. He said he could get anybody to make a decision and accept Christ with the right circumstances, with the right environment, the right music, the right kind of plea, the right setting. I can convert anybody, he said. And so he said, we need to focus all of our attention upon formulating the environment and circumstances so that we can get people to make a decision. And that's when he introduced the morning bench, which became the altar call. He started flamboyantly calling people out. Get up out of your seats. Come down here. Bow down and make a decision for Christ. And that's... That's what gave rise to the modern altar call. Every head bowed, every eye closed, no one looking around. If you've made a decision, raise your hand. Yes, you, I see you, you, I see you. It, th- this is Arminianism worked out to its logical conclusion. Because man's will is free, they believe... And since there are lost sinners going to hell, and every service is full of lost sinners, we must turn the focus on saving souls. And so the ordinary means of grace, they're definitely not sufficient. The Word of God? I don't want to hear that. We need to excite people. We need to induce people. We need to lead people into this life-changing experience with God. We can do it through music. We can do it through manipulation. We can do it through a fog machine. (laughs) We can do it through all these sorts of means in order to induce a decision. All right, um, quickly moving on. I've got to wrap this up. Antinomian. This is a very broad category. Um, When I say this, it includes many. But historically, it's been used to describe anyone who denies that the Ten Commandments or a continual rule of life. That's a historic definition of an antinomian. Okay, I, I realize that's, con- that's a controversial definition, but I'm using it in a historical sense. If you deny the Ten Commandments as the guide, uh, the moral law of God, and the guide for the Christian life, then historically you're called an antinomian. Of course, 
The first four commandments are very important to the regular principle of worship. So this category, they, they may be those who are not Catholic, they're not charismatic, they're not Arminian, but who simply deny that God governs worship in the New Testament. That's the Old Testament. We're under a different covenant. And we see this actually in a lot of Reformed Baptists nowadays. Calvinistic Baptists who deny the regular principle. So my point here, what are the implications of the antinomian view? Well, the Lord's Supper, for example. Given their theological framework, Roman, Roman Catholicism denies the cup to the laity. On what basis... Would we say that's wrong? You can deny the cup. What about pizza and coke? Instead of bread and wine. (laughs) Why not? If you deny the regular principle, why not have pizza and coke? Does it really matter? God hasn't instructed his worship, right? How about remove it altogether? You don't need the Lord's Supper. It's old. It's outdated. It's ritualistic. It's divisive. It's divisive. That's been a big argument. Especially, especially if you fence the table. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Baptism. This is Baptist coming out of me. Sprinkle, pour, dip. Does it really matter? Oh, does it really matter? What about who do we baptize? You laugh. Lutheran churches will baptize your pets. What if it's a fish? I've seen it. <laughs> They're born in the covenant community already. <laughs> Baptists, Baptists have appealed to the regular principle to our Pado Baptist brothers and sisters and say, not only do you violate the mode, which is so funny because most of them will they will die before substituting grape juice for wine. But they are, they, oh, the mode doesn't matter, even though the word clearly means to submerse. The mode doesn't matter, and then they baptize. Every example of baptism in the New Testament, every example, comes after a confession of faith. Yes, even the household baptisms, I would argue. So the regular principle affects this as well. If, if you have this, if you deny it, you're, you're, you're really left to all of these things. In the worship service, and I gotta, I gotta finish. The worship service, we have an opera, drama, special music, a wrestling match with with gospel exhortations. You see, once you deny this, those who deny the regular principle have no room to exclude any of these things beyond the bounds of just saying, "Well, it isn't for the best. That doesn't seem really wise." But the regular principle is built on the conviction that we believe God has spoken objectively and that Christ is the head of the church. And how does Christ exercise His authority? He governs His church with clear objective boundaries. The regular principle is Jesus Christ exercising His authority in the local church. Oh man, I still have more? Alright, I'm going to I'm gonna have to close with this, alright? So we've got to wrap this up. But we're going to move to talk about the day of worship. And we're going to talk about the regular, regularity of corporate worship. Does the church have the right to demand that every day is a day of corporate worship? Or can the church say, you know what, we're only going to meet once a month, once a quarter, once a year? 
or we're only going to meet Friday and Saturday night, or we're going to have a Friday and Saturday night services uh, so the people can have their Sundays freed up. Well, we believe that's a very clear violation of the Word of God. That's where we're going. Obviously, if you reject the regular principle, you can do whatever you want. doesn't matter. All right. Um, I'm sorry there's no time for questions. We went late, but uh, let's close in prayer.